We are starting a new series today in the book of 2nd John and 3rd John. So I encourage you to turn back to the back part of the, your New Testament, right before the books of Jude and Revelation, you'll find 2nd John and 3rd John. 2nd John is the second shortest book in the New Testament, and 3rd John is the shortest. So we are going to be looking at the shortest two uh, books of the New Testament. Books written, the human author of which is the Apostle John. We know that from some internal evidence and some external evidence. Internally, a lot of the grammar is the same between the Gospel of John and then the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Also, the author of First John and the Gospel of John were both eyewitnesses to the works of Jesus, to Jesus' ministry. And then finally, externally, the early church fathers, those great leaders in the, those early days of the church, attributed these books to John himself. So we find here the Apostle John wanting to encourage his readers. Second and third John were written in the early 90s, and they are written as a follow-up to what John wrote in the first epistle of John. There are some issues going on. The people to whom he is writing are hurting. They are living in confusing times. Their faith is under attack. Most likely they are living in a time where the church is being persecuted. This being written late, probably around 90 A.D. And the readers of this letter, the original recipients, are questioning their very faith. And John is writing to them to encourage them, to assure them that their hope must remain upon the solid truth of the gospel. When I was in high school, I took a job over on the other side of the Missouri River in Omaha, Nebraska. And in the latter half of my high school years and the first half of my college years, I worked at an old warehouse that was built in the 1800s. There were in the office pictures of large teams of mules that would have been used to pull the elevators up to the top, the sixth floor of this building, and then they would uh, let the elevators back down. In my job at this warehouse, I spent most of my days unloading railway cars and semis, unloading things like wire and nails and, and galvanized pipe. One day the manager of the plant or of the uh, warehouse came to me and said, I have a job for you today. I want you to clean the elevator shaft. Well, that did not sound very safe to me. And uh, I was a little bit nervous, this old, rickety elevator, and he wanted me to get on top of the elevator car and take a scraper, a putty knife, and clean off all the old grease and then apply new grease to this elevator shaft. And I looked to my boss and said, Hutch, 
I'm never really comfortable getting inside of these elevator cars, and now you want me to get on top. We position the elevator where it should be. We cut the power. He opened up these old rickety doors, and he stepped out on top of that elevator car first, asked me to come on with him, and he showed me this mammoth steel cable that was attached to that elevator car and said, this car's not going anywhere. He, he showed me that I could have confidence that that, that car was secure, that it was solid, that it wasn't going to drop six floors. And what John is doing here in second John is he's stepping onto that elevator car with his readers, saying, I know we live in perilous times. I know you're hurting. I know that our faith is under attack. And I want to encourage you that we can have confidence in solid truth, stable truth. Solid truth, the gospel. And so what John does in perilous times is brings his readers back to the fundamentals of the gospel. And I chose to begin this series because we too are living in perilous, confusing days. And the message that John has for his readers is a good message for us. That we will find John bringing us back to the very basic essence of our faith. The truth of the gospel. There's an issue happening And we get a glimpse into that from the little epistle of 1 John. One of the things that's happening is that those who were part of this church family, there are these many church families because 1 John was a circular letter. It was written and then it went to various churches in the region. People in those churches have left those churches and are saying that Jesus is not the God-man. That Jesus Christ is not God who took on flesh. They're denying the person of Jesus Christ. We know that from 1 John chapter 4. That they are attacking the very person of Jesus in verses 2 and 3. We also know from chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, that most likely they're denying that Jesus even needed to go to the cross. And so these ones have not only left the church, but now they're circulating to all the churches that would have received the first epistle of John and are trying to tell the people in the surrounding churches that Jesus isn't God, and that there's no need for the cross. We know from Second John chapter or Second John seven, it says, "For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh." So that's what's happening. 
These people to whom John writes are hurting. They're hurting because of externally, because of persecution, and they're hurting because internally these false teachers are trying to convince them that their faith is not based on sure truth. So John comes. He steps alongside of them and says, Nope, we have a sure faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he does in perilous times. He brings his readers back to the gospel. So I want us to look, I'm just going to, going to read the first three verses of 2 John. You can follow along in your copy of the text. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth, and love. Now, John here just identifies himself as the elder. We've talked about why Bible teachers conclude that this is the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, that we read about in Mark chapter 1, verses uh, around verse 19. Here, John addresses this second letter to the chosen lady and her children. Some Bible teachers even in recent years, have concluded that John is writing to a literal woman and her kids. But most Bible teachers think that John is addressing this letter to a local church, one of those churches that would have received First John. And the reason that Bible teachers believe that this is not just a reference to one lady and her children, but rather a local church, the children being the members of the local church, is uh, twofold. One, if you look at verses, oh, about verse 6, 8, 10, 12, if you look in the Greek text, the word you is plural. In the English language, we don't distinguish the word you from being singular or plural. I could say, uh, did you find the dog? You don't know if I'm talking to a single one person or more than one. You have to tell from the context. But in Greek, it's two different words. And so Bible teaches us, okay, he's talking to more than just one lady and her children. And secondly, if you go to the end of this little letter, to verse 13, it says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. So the letter is addressed to a chosen lady and her children. And then in the end, it says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. Most Bible teachers today, and I agree with them, believe that John here is referring to local churches. That in the end, the children of your sister, it's saying a sister church sends its greetings to you. The word chosen referring to the fact that we are chosen in Jesus Christ as recipients of grace of salvation. So we find here John writing in kind of a cryptic style. And we can ask, well, why doesn't he just address the church? Remember, most likely these churches are being persecuted. And many believe that by addressing this to the chosen lady, if this letter would have been intercepted, 
by governmental officials, it, they would not have known where it was going and thus caused more persecution upon that church. So John here is addressing what I believe is a local church. And he says to this local church, I love you. I love you. Now, he doesn't just say, I love you. He says, referring to these to this church as those whom I love in truth. The little word in there can carry the idea of on the basis of truth. That on the bedrock of truth. So, John is saying this. I love you based on truth. And not only me... But also all who know the truth love you. I love you. Others who know the truth love you. Now, it causes us to question, what is this truth that John is talking about? Well, certainly, if we look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John together, it would be the message of these books. The truth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is God, that he died in our stead and rose again from the dead. Many believe that we could take that one step further and not only say that John is talking just about the message of Jesus Christ, but is talking about Jesus Christ himself. Remember in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Most likely, John here is saying this, I love you on the basis of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ, that he is our Savior, that he is God, that he died in our stead and rose from the dead. And not only do I love you based on Jesus Christ, But all the rest of those in the churches around you who believe in Jesus Christ love you. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is what binds us together. Now remember, these people are hurting. There's these false teachers attacking them. They are most likely suffering persecution from the outside as well. And what John does, the very first thing he does... It says this, we have a bond. And when we go through perilous times, the most important thing that we can do is come back to the bare essentials and remember truth. Remember the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he did die for us and rose from the dead proving that he is God. And it's based on that truth that we have a relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's based on that truth that we love each other. Just as these readers were living in perilous times, discouraging times, so also are we. This week I return home from the office later in the evening and Barbara and I went to the lower level of our home and turned on the television and it was very disturbing to me to see one of the very first commercials that came on the television set and it was a commercial for Campbell's Soup 
of all things. Now, I grew up eating Campbell's soup. It's Campbell's Soup's America. Bean and bacon or tomato with a grilled cheese sandwich. It's Campbell's Soup. But this commercial is a commercial based on Star Wars. And you, the camera comes in on a dad and a son. And it says, I am your father. And then the camera switches over to another man that says, no, I am your father. So this TV commercial is picturing two homosexual men claiming to be the family of this of this little boy in a Campbell soup commercial in prime time and then the byline of the commercial is this made for real real life so Campbell soup is trying to say this is the norm this is reality this is real life for those of us who believe that God is the one who defines marriage. For those of us who believe that the scripture teaches that marriage is defined by God, it's not up to us to redefine it, that marriage is between one man and one woman, this is grievous. And 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 this is just a tiny example. We could probably spend an hour and a half just talking amongst us of different aspects we're seeing in our culture. That, and this is this fast downward spiral and and it's almost scary except except that we as followers of Jesus Christ have the same hope today that these readers of 2 John had we have a hope in the only source of surety. We have a hope in the only answer that this country really has. And that's in the person of Jesus Christ. And what John does with his audience is what we need to be doing as well, and that is going back to the bare essentials of our faith. What does John do? He says, I love you based on the truth. What's the truth? The truth is what he's been writing about all through here. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is God. One of my favorite passages to turn to from the writings of John, our human author of the book, that I think clearly shows Jesus' claim to be God is in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, the gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus is addressing a Jewish audience and he tells them this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now there's a lot packed in there. First of all, in the, in, in the Greek language, Jesus uses when he says, I am, He's actually using the same words that the Hebrew equivalent would have been that name of God that God told Moses, hey, what am I going to tell when Moses says to God, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am sent you. Jesus here says, before Abraham was even born, I am. How did the hearers of this statement, how did they interpret that? They interpreted the exact way that Jesus meant it is a claim to being God. And what did they do? Verse uh, 59 says they picked up stones to throw at him. They thought he was blaspheming because he's claiming to be God. 
Here, John says, we're in perilous times. What do we do? We come back to the gospel. We are reminded of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is God, that he died as our substitute. There's a verse just in the little epistle of John, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 2, that says that, that Jesus and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We don't use the word propitiation at all anymore. But it's a word that means that when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God. We don't like to think of God as being a wrathful God, but he is. He's wrathful towards sin. And when Jesus went to that cross, he took all of God the Father's wrath upon himself. That's what he did for you and for me. So here, all packed up in this little word truth, John is saying this. Let's take solace in the fact that it is true that Jesus is God, that he died in our stead, taking the wrath of God upon himself, and that he did not stay dead. He rose again from the grave. Now, it's interesting what John says here. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, on the basis of truth. Now, that's going to be important to us. Especially in two weeks when we, when John starts addressing false teachers. John is saying this. My love for you is based upon the truth of Jesus Christ. Now that statement has a negative side to it and a positive side to it. The negative side is this. These false teachers that are denying that Jesus is even God, You shouldn't be opening up your homes to them. They're coming as an itinerant preacher, espousing heretical teaching. You shouldn't be welcoming them, demonstrating love to them. They are not bearers of truth. They are false teachers. The positive side of this statement is John saying, hey... But for all of us who do believe in the bare essentials of the faith, that Jesus is God, that he died as a substitute for our sin, and then rose again from the dead, there's a, we have a bond. And that's important for us to hear today too. That as our culture continues to degrade, We have a bond with brothers and sisters in Christ through Jesus Christ that's beyond the walls of Faith Bible Church. And that we need to be encouragers and uplifters of all those churches who hold to the bare essence of the gospel. We may not agree in all areas of theology. And sometimes... Those disagreements in other areas other than gospel are so great that maybe we wouldn't even join with them in a joint ministry, but they are still brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to spend eternity with them. And as our culture continues to degrade, we need our brothers and sisters in Christ within our church family and outside of our church family. Here, John is saying this. I know we're in scary times, but let's, let me step out on the elevator car with you. 
I want to show you that the strength of this cable. I want to show you that our message is still true. That Jesus Christ still is God. That Jesus Christ did die for us. That Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. In fact, in verse 2, John goes on to explain why he can be so confident because of, for the sake of, we translate it because of, the fact that the truth which abides, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. I'm confident of this because Jesus Christ abides in us by means of the Spirit of God and He'll be with us forever. In perilous times, the gospel has to be preeminent. I'm going to make a comment that will probably make some of you upset, but that's okay. We are not, we cannot put our hope in politicians. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't, I'm not saying that we should not be politically active. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to speak truth, but our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ and the life-changing message of the gospel. And so here is what John is saying. And this is a message for us today. In, I could just go on and on about how discouraging our culture, as we look at our culture, how discouraging it is. And yet as Christians, John's trying to encourage us that we have hope Not in the externals. We have hope in the surety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says this. Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, Some would look at this and say, well, that's just a greeting. It's not just a greeting. John means everything he says here. In fact, he doesn't, it's not a prayer that his readership and he will experience grace, mercy, and peace. He says in verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. It's interesting in the Greek text, the little word from is before both the word the Father and the Son making it very clear that the Father and Son are equal, that the the Son is deity just as much as the Father is deity, and yet separate entities. And here, John is trying to encourage his readers and say this, we're living in perilous times. There's one place where we can find grace and mercy and peace, and that is in truth, in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we find grace mercy, and peace. Notice the last phrase of the verse, in truth and love. And I believe what John is saying here when he says in truth and love is that our bond is in the person of Jesus Christ. But we walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship, in love for each other. The Christian life is not meant to live in isolation. The Christian life is not meant to live by ourselves because the way that God demonstrates 
grace to us oftentimes is through our brothers and sisters in Christ as we serve as conduits for God's grace bestowed on each other. When John uses the word grace here, he certainly is talking about the kindness of God bestowed upon us in in forgiving our sin when we don't deserve it. But he also is using the term, just like Paul uses the term in 2 Corinthians, when, when, when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. There's not only salvation grace, there's enabling grace that God gives us to live out our lives for him in perilous days. And here, John is so confident that grace is available that he says that we, it, it will be with us from God, from the Father and from the Son. It will be. It's sure. How can I be sure? How can I find that grace? It's in the truth. It's only found in one place, in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only grace, but mercy, that that compassion. Some like to give uh, an easy-to-remember description of the difference between grace and mercy is grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And then he says peace. Peace here in the New Testament is very similar to the Old Testament concept of peace. It's much more than just saying the absence of being anxious. Peace carries the idea of wholeness. It, 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 it carries the idea of overall well-being. So here, John's saying, I know we're in perilous times. I know these false teachers are attacking our faith, but there's only one way, there's only one source of God's enablement and forgiveness and mercy and well-being. It's to be standing firm in the truth of the gospel and walking together with our brothers and sisters in Christ so they can be conduits of God's grace and mercy and peace toward us. Perilous times. Now, John's readers are hurting. What does John do? He preaches the gospel. He takes them back to truth. And it's important for us as well to be, in a sense, preaching the gospel with each other. Parents, grandparents, it's so important in your homes to continually be taking children and grandchildren back to the truth of the gospel. When our boys were still in our home, at least once a week, when we were sitting around the table, I would go over the gospel with my boys. And we would literally talk through, hey, can a person come to right relationship with God on their own by their good merits? And the boys would know where we're going with this and we'd just talk about it. But it's also important to integrate the gospel. Meaning, we talk about the gospel in everyday aspects of our lives. Say, for example, you as a family uh, outgrew your home and you finally have been able to buy a home that better suits the needs of your family. It's a great opportunity to sit down as a family when we come together in that new home and say, our hope's not in this place. 
God's provided it. It's a gift from him, but it's not where our hope is. Our hope's in the gospel. Or maybe we go through times of hurt. Maybe in the workplace, you are uh, being undercut by a co-worker. Someone's trying to purposefully hurt you. And your children are aware that things are going tough for dad or mom at the office. It's a great time to sit down together as a family and say, yeah, this is happening. But this person doesn't know Jesus. They've never put their trust in Christ and we need to pray for their salvation. You see, that's integrating the gospel into everyday life. It's teaching our children and our grandchildren the importance of in perilous times we come back to the gospel because that's exactly what John does here. John is saying the truth of the gospel is the basis of our love for each other. The truth of the gospel is our sure hope. And while you and I are living in this culture that we see fragmenting right before our eyes, while I too sometimes look at it and say, man, this is scary days, we can look at it with confidence and say, hey, I've got brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've got the only answer for this mess. And it's Jesus Christ. And in the as things get darker and darker, the light of Jesus Christ shines brighter and brighter.